I want to orient you a little bit as we get into this. So where are we? Well, that's a big question. That's not just location. I'm not talking about geography. I'm saying, where are we? C.S. Lewis said that we're living in the hangover of naturalism. He then goes on to describe that. What does that mean? We all have naturalism living in our bones. Now, what's naturalism? I, I would say it's a way of seeing the world without miracles. That's natural. That, that I could tell you a lot of different ways, but I think that I want to say that a way of seeing the world without miracles. Now, some of you don't know that you kind of are living in that because it's like a uh, fish in water. You, you're like out of the water. Someone told you you're not in water. You're like, I don't know what water is. You just grew up in this where just your whole maybe schooling and education told you that there's nothing beyond what you can see, feel, or touch. Don't, don't put any hope in that. Put in what can be scientifically verified with real data that we can comprehend. But then others of us not only had that, some of us grew up in that plus the church, and we're living kind of in the hangover of moralism. And some of us have moralism in our bones. Like it just seems like a default reaction when things happen or when things go wrong or when we're trying to get somewhere or grow. That's our, our default. I would say moralism is a way of seeing the world without generosity. Without generosity. A stingy hardened God cop in the sky. If you strip the generosity of God from God, you're left with a way of seeing the world without generosity. Now, maybe more another question, where are we now? Well, honestly, it's, it's wars are happening. Things are breaking. Christian leaders, Christian leaders have fallen. Professing believers have walked away. Families have broken apart. And this isn't far removed from us. This is right here within us. Mass confusion on the basics of human sexuality. Mass confusion. A colossal cultural shift in the past five years. And so where are we now? Uh, chaos, a little bit chaotic. That's, that's what I felt like. On this ride of trying to pastor you the five, this past five years has felt like, I don't know why I have reins, because it feels like I'd not, I didn't have reins. I'm just like, we're riding without the reins and wheels and horse. I'm actually just <laughs> pretending this is how wild this is. It's been chaotic. Chaos is a way of experiencing the world without peace. Miracles, generosity, and peace. And if I go the other route, just the chaos and the way to deal with that chaos, moralism or 
the way to try to find some control in naturalism, only what I can see and what I can feel and what we've experienced. But in that, that space is where the story of Christmas punches us in the gut with grace. So last week we saw a barren woman, Sarah specifically, and her husband Abram. And God comes and promises them a people and a place and his own presence to be with them. And then years go on and there's no child, no child, no child. Ah, it's going to have to be my servant. No, I'm going to take it into my own hands. No child, no child, no child. I'm going to have a a baby with one of my servants because you're not giving this no child. And so then what does the Lord do? He brings fruit to barren places because he's a generous king. Where he promises, he delivers, and he gives his presence. He gives a people. He gives a place to that people where they can dwell with his presence. Like God, even knowing, knowing all things, tells Abraham that this is going to happen. He says, you're going to grow into a great nation, then you're going to go into slavery, then I'm going to rescue you out of it, they're going to be there for a while, and rescue you out and brand them into the land that I promised you. And that's kind of like where we've been in Judges. We're taking a break from Judges, but like where we've been is just that story of they've been pulled out of, of slavery from Egypt, and then they've wandered through the wilderness, now they're in the land that, that the Lord has given them, and they just repeatedly turn away from the Lord and add multiple other gods to their eclectic worship of God and their eclectic way of living that's just kind of a hodgepodge mix of uh, well this this kind of uh, worshiping of the storm God well this is how we how we like re- relate to him these are the practices these are habits and so you, you pick up some of those and he's just kind of this weaved in what what's called syncretistic life worshiping multiple gods at the same time and so you got judges, and it leaves with that bitter taste in the mouth that everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. They're doing evil because there's no king in Israel. And then, like Pastor Lucas read, a shoot is going to come, and you get that hope of a son from Jesse. Who's that? David. Oh, the, 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 the king has come, and he's put on his throne, and, and God makes promises to him about his throne. And then what happens? Well, again, failure. A kingdom fails, divides, breaks, splinters, gets taken into captivity again. So with this darkness, with this chaos, this is where Isaiah is. This is where the people of Israel are. Around 700 B.C., Isaiah 9 Verse 1, I want you to see it with me. If you don't have a Bible, there should be around one around you in a seat, underneath a seat, or in these wicker baskets if you want to walk all the way to the front. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can, you can grab them, take it home with you, okay? Isaiah 9, verse 1. Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times, when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land 
east of the Jordan and to Galilee of the nations. So at this point, around 700 B.C., the people of Judah are following the king, their king, Ahaz, and they're again rejecting God, following in his footsteps, following in Ahaz's leadership. And so God promises in chapter 8 that the, there's going to be a coming Assyrian invasion. And they're going to come, not gentle and mild, they're going to come like a flash flood, raging water, overflowing the banks of Judah, sweeping through, reaching up to the neck. That's what chapter 8, verse 8 states. And then Isaiah reports what the Lord told him. So he would not go the way of King Ahaz and the people of Judah, so he would not reject and disbelieve God, so that he wouldn't follow in the footsteps of of everyone making this choice, everyone walking this path, everyone saying, yeah, the, this, that group mentality, we're all headed this way. And then the chapter ends with Isaiah warning that the people should ask God and believe God. If you want to have a little bit of wisdom and a prophetic utterance and a cultural shift, I think here's some wisdom. Maybe not get tied up in all the tertiary third layer arguments but but have a genuine conversation and encourage the person to ask God <laughs> and then what believe God that's what we're going to wrestle with we could talk about all the implications of your worldview down down to the the, the basics of human sexuality but at the the, <laughs> the edge of the spear is this to ask God who he is. Would you start there? Who is God? Who you say he is? Who do you think he is? But he's the prophet, so he gets to kind of finish it with a bang, right? You, you don't get to do this just to be clear. But he says, otherwise there'll be no dawn. Now that sounds like a threat if you say it, okay, right? You're like, wait, tell someone that. They're going to be like, do you know where I live? Have you seen my address? Like, what are you talking about? There will be no dawn for me? There will be no dawn. All right, Liam Neeson. Uh, but, but he, he says this. And then look at 820. Go back a little bit. Chapter 8, verse 20. Go to God's instruction and testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, word, there will be no dawn for them. They will wander through the land, dejected and hungry. When they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upward will curse their king and their God. They'll look toward the earth and see only distress, darkness, and the gloom of affliction, and they will be driven into thick darkness. That, that, it doubled down. Do you hear them? You see only distress, darkness, and the gloom, and you'll be driven into thick darkness. If you can only see darkness, I don't know what is darker than that, but there's a thick darkness that's darker than that, and he's saying both. You're going to get both. That's how dark this is going to be. No dawn, just oppression, oppression distress, gloom, darkness, no light, chaos. This is what your path will be. This is where this is going. 
again that wisdom of if you continue on this path that you're on, do you see where it ends? But then in the future, God will bring honor to the way of the sea. That, that, that's one of those phrases that we don't understand. Where I go, I don't know, what does honor to the land of the sea mean? east of the Jordan to the Galilee of the nations. Well, whenever foreign armies would march over the fertile crescent to invade Israel like Assyria is going to do, the first place to be attacked was Galilee in the north. So the Galileans knew oppression firsthand, knew slavery, knew darkness, knew despair. They have hit the edge of the spear of those campaigns over and over and over again from whoever's invading at this time. Everyone makes their track over this spot and it hits them directly every time. But in the future, God will bring honor to Galilee. Dawn will come to Galilee. A light will radiate in the darkness of Galilee. The oppressed will be liberated in Galilee. Darkness will scatter in Galilee. Gloom will flee. In Galilee, that's what he's saying. That's what he's promising. You've known oppression, you know darkness, you've known this distress, you've known crying and suffering so much, Galilee, but a dawn is coming. But first, before we get too excited, can you consider your chaos a bit? Our chaos a bit? the effects of the fall of our first parents, Adam and Eve, the effects of the fall are chaotic, are disorderly. I'll give you a few examples. What happens in the fall? Well, viewing God as a friend to walk with is replaced by viewing him as an enemy to hide from. Trust is replaced with fear. Love is replaced with indifference and even hatred. Intimacy with God is replaced by separation from God. Honesty is replaced with lying and deceit. Freedom, the freedom to obey God the joyful freedom to obey, to obey God was replaced with the enslavement to sin. Self-sacrifice was replaced by self-centeredness. Peace, shalom, wholeness, harmony was replaced with restlessness. Responsibility was replaced by blaming. put it more poignantly, D.A. Carson says, consumed by our own self-focus, we desire to dominate or manipulate others. Here is the beginning of fences, of rape, of greed, of malice, of nurtured bitterness, of war. Think about the, the chaos, the unpeace, the disharmony. And some of you guys are even first 
thinking about the, the chaotic person in your life that's brought chaos to you, but maybe even before that, what about here? The chaos in your thoughts and your desires and your feelings, your, your inner person. disorder the lack of peace that that restlessness but with such chaos God will act back to chapter 9 verse 2 the people walking in darkness have seen a great light a light has dawned on those living in a land of darkness you god have enlarged the nation and increased its joy the people have rejoiced before you as they rejoiced at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoil why why are they partying why are they celebrating why are they rejoicing you shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders the staff of their oppressor just as you did on the day of Midian for every trampling boot of battle and the bloody garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire with such great darkness and chaos the bright dawn light shines bright they've seen a great light God is enlarging the nation he's increasing its joy the people marked by gloom, by depression, by oppression, by distress, by darkness, are now rejoicing like it's harvest time, like it's victory time. That's what it's like dividing spoils. We just won. Or the harvest just came in. We're actually going to survive winter. Yes. Let's party. That's how they're celebrating. Dawn has come. The light is here. And then he describes that. What does that mean? Well, it means... You had a yoke on your neck, oppressed by a foreign army, and God has now come, crushed it, taken it off you, and now you can stand up and walk freely with him. The liberator is fighting for them to set them free. He says he's going to rescue them like he did with Gideon and the Midianites. And we just walked through that story of, hey, 32,000 soldiers against more is too many. Too many. Okay, let's whittle it down to 300. Let's, 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 let's let God flex and show what, what God can do with 300 people and a couple of horns, a couple of trumpets, right? And then all the war clothes will be burned as fuel. That means they're throwing a bonfire and that's what they're going to be dancing and celebrating around. And it's going to be the fuel. they got plenty of fuel for it. Ray Ortland states it this way. Our liberator will not only defeat all the forces of evil, he will put a final end to conflict itself. Every mechanism for tyranny will go into the bonfire of God's grace. Let me say that again. Every mechanism for tyranny will go into the bonfire of God's grace. The passive voice will be burned whispers that this victory is not our accomplishment. 
We step onto the battlefield after the victory is won, and all we do is celebrate. God has promised his presence, a people, and a place, and now he's promising his peace. But how will God break dawn into darkness? How will he liberate, how will he liberate people that are in such gloom, such darkness, such slavery? And, and, if, and if you're reading Isaiah originally, you're like, I don't know, maybe like a Samson? Can we get a Samson? Can we get another dude that like just picks up bones that he found in the pasture and starts beating all our enemies with? That would be awesome. Another Samson, right? I say, okay, if not Sam, yeah, he was kind of sketchy. We get it. His life ended. All right, David, maybe another David. This will be it. We could get a David. Verse 6. A child will be born for us. The answer to the world's darkness, God's answer to the world's darkness is a child. Okay, let me say it more specifically to you. God's answer to the chaos in your heart is a child. Not that buff, long-haired Samson sweeping in like Fabio. A child. Do you hear how crazy this is? I know you've heard this story maybe once or twice, but do you still understand how crazy this is? What he just said to them? How dark their state is? And then he says, but take great hope. Light is shining. Why? I'm going to give you a child. <laughs> okay. What? That's your answer? Okay. And it gets wilder. A son will be given to us. And the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. And then look at that last phrase. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. There's such darkness. I'm going to give you a child because I am so zealous to address the darkness, chaos, disharmony in you and in this world. The strutting king of Assyria and all the tyrants and presidents and armed forces of the world do not compare to this child of God, this promised son. Because God's power, he, he's so powerful, he's going to break down and liberate us with a child. That's his promise. Break the bonds, carry the government on his shoulders. Rescue from tyranny and slavery. Rescue us from everything that has ever terrorized us. 
and he'll be named, he'll be titled Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. So let's be clear here on the promise. God will give us a child who will be named God. A son will be warn, born and wonderful counselor will be ascribed to him. He'll do signs and wonders and give wise words and true teaching. A child will be given and people call him mighty God. Not that he's a mighty soldier or warrior with almost supernatural ability. No, he is mighty God. Omnipotent deity. A son will be born, but he'll be called Eternal Father. He'll have a birth date, but he's also existed in eternity past and will continue forever in the future. Wrap your mind around that one. A child will be given, and Prince of Peace will be attributed to him. He'll be a ruler who brings peace and is characterized by peace. This newborn really carries all our deepest longings, our deepest hopes. Like those titles themselves are what we long for. We want a wise counselor. Some of you guys would prefer to do this without anyone, so you just want to be the wise counselor. But like all of us, that's arrogance, right? But what you long for, what you want, is a wise counselor. When you wrestle with the evil and suffering of this world, you, you want a powerful God and a good God. You want innately a father that not only provides, but he's also present in love. And I, I really want a ruler who actually provides the pre peace he promises. And the wonder of this child is not done. If, if that wasn't enough to thrill your soul and stir your hope in whatever darkness or gloom that's going on in your heart and life, his dominion will be vast and its increase and prosperity will never end. He'll sit on the forever throne from the line of David, establishing and sustaining his kingdom with justice and righteousness. So not only peace, but prosperity. Why? Because he's generous. A generous king leads and orders a generous kingdom. And these aren't empty campaign promises. This isn't a leader telling you what you want to hear to get your vote, and then they really can't do much when they get in office. This is the word of the Lord. This is the promise of God. This is certain. Why? Because God is faithful. When he says it, you can count it as done before it is done. That's how, you, how sure it is, how you can bank on it. Look again, last line of verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. 
it's the that zeal. We love to take good words and, you know, through history, make them terrible, right? Because then you're like, zealot? Oh, no, don't go there. What zeal is, is passionate fervor. He's saying the Lord of armies has per passionate fervor. This promised son is a declaration of war by the Lord of armies on the darkness of this world. He's saying it's chaos and darkness. There's so much disharmony. I'm going to throw the Prince of Peace to you. Give us a child to liberate us because God is passionate about our salvation. He's red hot for our liberation. He's enthusiastic for our rescue. Do, do you hear how moralism stinks compared to this? Do you hear how generous God is? To think of it as some stingy cop always driving behind you, waiting, 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 waiting. Ah, there he is. He didn't blink. He didn't turn his blinker on. That's what I meant. <laughs> Don't drive and blink, right? Don't blink and drive. There it is. Sorry. I get excited because this is what it is. It, it thrills God to give to us. That's what he's saying. Zeal is his enthusiasm, his jealousy, his passion, and his zeal will give us a son. Isaiah 42.3 compares God with a warrior psyching himself up for battle, uh, going into battle. He stirs up his zeal. So you got to think Braveheart or whatever, like, ah, oh, you stir up your zeal before you go to battle. You got to psych yourself up. And that's the word here in Isaiah 42.3. Isaiah 63.15 speaks of the emotions surging within the being of God. Your zeal and your might, the stirring of your inner parts. Zephaniah 1.18 and 3 speak of the fire of his zeal. Psalm 79.5 says, uh, wonder at his zeal burning like fire. His zeal is burning like fire. Deuteronomy 4, and then Hebrews quotes it, Hebrews 12 29 quotes it, it says, Our God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. You take all that up, and Ray Ortland puts it this way God is not a wishy washy personality. He is on fire for the triumph of his grace. The zeal of the Lord of armies will do this. He will give a son, a child will be born. And he passionately has done it. That's the good news. About 700 years later, another angel visits another woman without children. This is Luke. Is that right, Jeff? In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Mm -hmm. the Lord, then the angel told her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great. 
and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. The Prince of Peace is coming. That's what he tells her. The Father is the God of peace, the Son is the Prince of Peace, and the Spirit always brings peace. And what has this God done? He's made peace with us through his Son. He pours out his peace on us and into us, and he calls us and enables us to pr pursue peace with others. That, that's what it means when we're talking about peace. Disharmony replaced with peace. Conflicts shut down and unity restored. Reconciliation made and enemies now friends. Robert Jones, talking about peace, he says, the Bible links peace in God in at least four ways. There's the saving peace that God made with us at the cross. And the ongoing inner peace God gives us in our souls. These twin gifts, in turn, bring two more blessings for the Christian believer. They enable us to pursue relational peace with others in this life. Moreover, they guarantee us an endless life of future situational peace in the world to come a new heaven and a new earth the home of righteousness so if the bible connects god and peace at least four ways i think there's different ways that peace is going to hit you this morning Meaning, some of you guys, your hearts are chaotic and out of control. For some of you, that means you just, you have not, your restless heart is still restless because it hasn't found rest in Jesus. So maybe even you know a lot about the Christmas story, but you, in your heart, has not collided with the grace of Jesus for you you don't know who he is and you really haven't experienced the liberation he's speaking of. Others of you, it just looks like maybe some syncretistic lifestyle and choices and you've pulled from a few other gods but you're still really committed to Jesus but it, and now your world is chaotic because you've got a divided kingdom going on in your heart warring against one another. To both of those, God is saying, there's peace here. Now, in suffering and chaos, we love to run and hide and isolate and pull away, but God is inviting you to say, no, in this very spot, in this very moment, is why I threw the Prince of Peace to you. This is what you need him for. This is why he came for you. This is why I gave him to you. This is why I was so generous with you is because I've seen and I've known your lack of peace. 
is to turn to turn from to turn to him to put your hope in him to believe in him say yes this is my hope he will rescue me what he promised is true but then then others of you <coughs> you need you need to hear of this so that you begin to work peace into your relationship. That that disharmony, that conflict, that ongoing nurtured bitterness that is turning into hatred, vile gossip and slant, whatever like that, that needs to be turned from and the peace of God needs to wash into your soul. Why? Because you have peace with him through Jesus. Your enemy can become your friend. Why? Because when you were God's enemy, he made you his friend. And I want you to see the next part. So that that's promised. And then he's born... In the same region, in Luke 2, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy. That will be for all the people today in the city of David. A Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be the sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly, there was a multitude of hosts, heavenly hosts, with the angel, <clears throat> praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. Rejoice, peace has come. The generous king is not a stingy cop or a stingy father or an absent father. He's a generous king who loves to give to you. And if you're like, are you sure? Yes, Jesus. That's what he's given you. That's what he's given you. And all that comes with it, right? That's what, that's what Paul is trying to say when he says Ephesians 1. Like, and all this, you're blessed with all the spiritual blessings. Why? Because you have Jesus. In him are all the spiritual blessings, all the fullness of God. Like, you, you have this because of Jesus, the peace from the chaos, the generosity instead of stinginess, and the supernatural instead of the boring, mundane, only what I can see and touch. What I'm saying is, what a better world Jesus makes. Do you hear me? I, I, I don't know. Sorry, I don't I don't know what you're wrestling with, but but that chaos and moralism and naturalism to me sounds terrible. Really. Could make a joke about it, but just honestly it sounds sad. Sounds hollow and empty because there's nothing beyond you transcendently. This is it, which means 
life is it, which means death, there's nothing else after. That sounds depressing and hollow. Moralism, I've been there, done that, got the t-shirt, then burned it for the fire, right? <laughs> uh, it was a freedom celebration. Me and my friends, we got out of moralism, we're like, yay! Um, but also the chaos. I want to know that I live in a world where dawn has broke. And yeah, I live in a tension where already but not yet. But dawn has broke and now I'm adventing. I'm waiting for the arrival of when he comes and what is he going to do. Romans tells us he's going to crush the enemy and give us peace forever. That's what it means when his kingdom has prosperity and will continue and the government's on his shoulders, he's going to run the new heaven and new earth, not with chaos, not with empty promises, not with something to get you to uh, vote for him and then leave you down and out throughout the rest of your life. No, he's going to bring righteousness, establish it, and sustain it. Mercy ministries will be gone. Responding to assault and sexual assault will be gone. Why? Because the Prince of Peace is reigning, establishing and sustaining righteousness forever. And so I want to believe in that because there's so much hope there than whatever this is. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm putting it strongly for you. See the difference is why? Because I want you to come with me this way. And, and for the future, yes, but also I, I, want, I want you to begin to experience that peace in your life now. That peace with the Lord that then gives you peace with yourself, that then also gives you peace with others. A child is given, and he's a savior, savior born for you. One last thing. I have like three pages. One last thing. I'll skip that. All right. Do you remember the gloom and darkness of Galilee? Right? I laid it on thick there. Okay. You remember that? You remember the promise? The bright dawn. Right? Well, in Matthew, not as a child, but a little bit later, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, John the baptizer, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. He left Nazareth and went to live in Capernaum by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Galilee, the most oppressed, the most hit, the most attacked, the most invaded place along the road by the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who live in darkness have seen a great light. He walked into their place, lived there, and fulfilled it. They saw him. He's the great light that showed up. He's the great light who arrives. And for those living in a land that shall the death, a light has dawned. From then on, Jesus began to preach, repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. And then a few verses later, Jesus began to go all over Galilee, 
teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Jesus is the light breaking the oppressive burden from sin, Satan, and death. And Jesus is the prince of peace bringing harmony. And Jesus is the generous king who gives us wonderful blessings, but ultimately gives us himself. And so God's generosity meant your salvation, your peace, and, and in response to that, there's work in the peace, but there's also work in the generosity. I told you last week that I confessed to you that I'd sinned by not leading you. The sin of omission of not leading you in, in generosity, thinking about your stewardship, thinking about your money. In one sense, because we were financially viable from the beginning, and most of you were members that were mature and were doing, were giving. But we're six years down the road, yes? And it's something we have to talk about. Of if this is a part of our God, if this is who he is, then how will we respond? Because being generous like God helps people grow. Being generous like God mirrors God, and then what brings fruit to barren places. That's what he, he does. I don't know if you saw this morning, but we sent out another email of a story this morning of a, a couple experiencing community and getting in community in Alito and just the, the first real time for them to, to be at a church and be a member of a church. And, and why is that possible? It's because you members have given to the mission. Now, at this point, uh, because you're awkward and I've not talked about this enough, so I guess I'm probably awkward, is I'm not asking you if you're not a member to give here to be very clear so you can just take a, a sigh of relief and not worry about anything and if you're a member and you're like well can I be not become a member uh, no okay <laughs> you knew what you're signing up for uh, but to be honest that, that's it like let's mirror our God who he is because he is the generous king and wherever he goes he brings light and peace and prosperity to chaos, confusion, disorder, moralism, and naturalism. He changes the game. I did lay it on here so you think there's really two options. You can continue in conflict, continue in disharmony, you continue just being at war with yourself and others, or I know it's hard. I understand it. If you want to rule, it's hard to give up your rule and surrender to the Prince of Peace. But in that submission, there will be peace. So come with us. Let's pray. Father, please help us in this. As Paul prays so many times, I pray that your peace would fill us, would, um, that we would experience it. That knowing you and knowing that you've pulled us into your family of harmony, your family of peace. Lord, we ask for your help, your wisdom, your spirit to show and to guide. 
build up, to encourage, to convict. Lord, have mercy. We need you. In Christ's name.